All right. Well, thank you for all that great uh, Christmas music. All those chord changes, that's a lot of fun, isn't it, Scott? Songs that you don't play all the time. But uh, I love the um, emphasis that we have the opportunity to put on the first coming of Christ, this Advent, how it's built into the uh, way that Scripture appears and how our calendar works, you know, the the rhythm of our own life, even as Westerners, it's built into who we are, this celebration of Christmas, and so we just wanted to dive deep into that. We're doing it in a little bit of a unique way uh, for the next several weeks in looking at the Gospel of John and what the story of Christ and his coming looks like there in, in John's Gospel. So if you will turn there in chapter 1, Gospel of John, we're going to uh, follow along in beginning in verse 29. And uh, next week, Cody is preaching for me because we're going to be out of town for my our grandson's birthday, and they live too far away for us to make it back over the weekend. So Cody is going to be bringing the message next week, and then for the two weeks following that, my intent is to stay with John into the first week of the year, and uh, we'll get back into the book of Acts, which is where we were before Christmas season came. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 29, the scripture says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now now it was about the tenth hour or four o'clock, I think, in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. And said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, or excuse me, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. Let's pray. God, thank you for the scripture. Thank you for its accurate record of first century events and of other events that speak to us about your purpose for us as people. And we pray now that your spirit may open the Bible to our understanding and help us speak from uh, your word. God, we pray that you'll open up our hearts to obey and to internalize these truths that you show us by your spirit from your word. Cleanse us, God. Forgive us in ways that we fail so that we uh, may be able to hear from you when we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Christmas uh, can be thought of as a helpful spiritual compass, I think. It's one of the reasons that we pause for several weeks and we uh, do Advent the way that we do it. We remember, of course, the word Advent means appearing or coming, the coming of Christ. And we know that Jesus came the first time incarnate in the flesh in the first century. And we've talked about how the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we we talked about how he is preexistent God. And we see that again in the passage today where John the Baptist says he's preferred before me because he was before me. He says, actually, even though I'm older, I'm his older cousin, he existed before me. And it's a way of the uh, the scripture showing us that Jesus is eternal. And so we've talked about that. The eternal God came to us. God is with us. And that's what we observe in this uh, season of Christmas. And so I think about Christmas uh, for us, for our purposes, that we can look at it as a sort of a spiritual compass. It shows us the way. It points us again and again to an important truth that four uh, weeks or five weeks in a year is not too many to, to be delivered in thinking about the fact that God has come and that he became human for you and me. That's what Christmas teaches us. God became human. He had a history here on this planet. And when I think about church, it's not too much to say either that church can help us recover the true meaning of Christmas. Uh, When we think about the roots of Christmas, it is distinctly Christian. Now we do things sometimes in our own way. Like our families will have traditions and layers of things that we think, well, it wouldn't be Christmas if we didn't do whatever it is in your family. Like my family growing up, we couldn't have Christmas without ambrosia. Anybody have ambrosia? I don't mean the smaltzy pop group in the like 70s or 80s, but it's this concoction that starts with tangerines and coconut and pecans and cherries. Yours is probably different than that, but that's what my uh, family put in it. It was okay. It wasn't earth-shattering, but you had to have it. And uh, we we did something that nobody else around us did. We did fireworks on Christmas Eve. I don't know why. It was just a weird family thing. We lived close to North Augusta. We would go get fireworks, and we had fireworks on Christmas Eve. And sometimes our neighbors called the police on us and stuff, but they usually were okay. I remember one Christmas, my dad was standing there with a Roman candle in his hand when the police pulled up. And it was like, 
Merry Christmas. <laughs> but everybody has their own thing. But when you get underneath what the essence of Christmas is, it's about the arrival of the Messiah. Christ came to us. God came here to this planet. And I read this quote this week from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Of course, Bonhoeffer wrote this when he was incarcerated and uh, would die. He, he was in a prison cell himself when he wrote this analogy of Advent. He says, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. He says this is a pretty accurate way of thinking about what incarnation is. We're locked in a prison. There's no way we can be released in someone, unless someone comes from the outside and lets us out. And the Bible teaches that's precisely what Jesus did. Came to us, unlocked the prison that we were in and opened it so that we might be free. The Gospels help us see that that's what the story, the narrative about incarnation and Christ's appearance really is about. Jesus opening that door and setting us free to follow him in true life, to, to find the life that we've been meant for, the one that we were locked away from. Among other things, Jesus, when we read this passage and think about the one uh, that we'll see today, he knits us together in meaningful spiritual relationships. So I think it's a neat passage for us to look at because one of the things that we see Jesus doing is transforming people's relationships. They were uh, deeply committed to the idea that spirituality mattered. These men that we see in the story who end up following Jesus, some of them initially followed John the Baptist. But when the, John the Baptist himself shows us that my role is not to accumulate followers to myself. And so like we'll see in the passage, he willingly releases them to follow Jesus and points them toward Jesus as the one that they ought to be following. But part of what we'll understand in focusing on this passage is that God really does want to take the relationships that we have and transform them and use us to help other people also follow Jesus. So the message is going to show us that there are reverberations. You know, we think about the first century and what the, the writer is telling us about what happened when Jesus came to Bethlehem and when Jesus lived in Galilee. But there are reverberations now. It's why even though people may not do it, Specifically to honor Christ Messiah, we hang up lights on our homes and we do all the, we put trees inside and all the things that we do. Really, the root of it is the Messiah coming to us. So, there are two parts of this passage today that we'll see together. And uh, let's see, one too far. I'm sorry. I think I have something out of order. Here we go. God came near to, first of all, deal with sin. That's the obvious part of this passage. When John the Baptist is publicly preaching about the Messiah, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so one writer put it this way, and I've been listening to this podcast that's been very helpful to me, and it helps us think about the historical moment that we're in. 
But the, that writer thinking about the nature of sin and uh, sacrifice says natural life or naturalism uh, is probably the way to think about it, is the survival of the fittest and the uh, sacrifice of the weakest. But he says when we think about what God was doing in Christ, the Jesus story is the sacrifice of the fittest for the survival of the weakest. When we think about the way the world is understood by many people today, they would say, if you, if you really follow Darwinism to its logical end, it's not looking out for the weakest. It says the weakest have to look out for themselves. The strong survive. That's what it teaches. So anytime we see something different than that, we know that its roots are Christian, and that's exactly the case. But the Bible teaches that the fittest person, how do, what does that mean? The only sinless one. When John talks about Jesus, he says the Lamb of God. Well, we know that in their system of sacrifice, the Lamb had to be without blemish, had to be spotless to be offered up. And the Bible teaches about Jesus that the only perfect human took the place of the imperfect people as a substitute and as a sacrifice. So when we think about what Christmas is for, definitely it starts with an infant. But that infant, we know, is in the shadow of a cross. That's his future. And he constantly, when he grows up and he becomes an adult and talks to his disciples, he says to them repeatedly, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to be raised from the dead on the third day. So he came specifically to die and he understood that that was the reason for his journey was to come to our planet and to take our place. There's a place in the scripture where the Bible talks about Jesus' appearance in the book of Hebrews. Now I'm going to have to back up because I put things out of order, so pardon me. But uh, in the book of Hebrews, the Bible talks about Christ's arrival this way. It says there that he, uh, speaking of Jesus as a sacrifice, which John is talking about, this, this Lamb of God, says he would have, have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages, at their time, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's a powerful statement that you find in that passage. He says Jesus came to put away sin, to deal with sin. So when he came in the first century and was born into this family, and it was for the purpose of dealing with human sin. And the Bible talks about us. It's appointed for men, for humans, once to die. And it says, but after this, the judgment. So every single one of us are mortal, right? We live in families. I've officiated, I can't tell you how many funerals for my own family members over the course of my 30-something years of ministry. Again and again, I've stood in front of congregations of family members and at the graveside of others because the reality is that our life is marching forward to a day we know not when, when we will not live here anymore. It's the way life works, and we don't know anybody it doesn't work that way for. I mean, uh, that's what the Scripture says. It's appointed to men to die. Physical death is an aspect of reality. And the Bible says that also because of sin, spiritual alienation occurred so that we need 
to be rescued. And Jesus came to do that, to rescue us. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, the scripture says, apart from sin for salvation. In other words, the next time he comes, he's not dealing with sin as a sacrifice. He is culminating history. That's what he'll do in his second advent. We're talking about the first advent, but this passage pulls in our blessed hope, the assurance that we have that Christ also is coming back just in the same way. The Bible says he came to this world. He had a physical presence here as a human, and he's coming back to this world to reign as king. And at that time, what does the scripture say about his appearance? That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this mission that he was on was dealing with the common, very common, uh, all-encompassing issue of human sin and fallenness. It's what the Bible says is wrong with the world. John the Baptist, when he talked about Jesus, said that he is preferred before me because he existed uh, before me, which we have seen in other earlier messages as uh, John's way of thinking about Jesus' eternality. We said God is plural. I'm going to keep repeating this stuff because I think it's helpful. But in in the very first part of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, God's personality is presented as plural. It says, let us make man in our image. Let us create him in our own image. Our, God's personality is plural. He is eternal in his presence and being. There's no time that God did not exist. He's always existed. And we say, that's mind-blowing. It is. But that's what the scripture teaches us about God's nature. He is first before everything. So when John talks about Jesus that way, this is what he's describing to us. And, he, and it's interesting is the way he talks about John the Baptist talks about his cousin Jesus. He says, I didn't know that he was the Messiah. Well, it's part of their family lore that we know was, at least we read it in the Gospels. But he he says, God confirmed to me that my cousin is the Messiah, was the Messiah. And he he writes about him. But he says, I didn't know this. And when he's talking about that, I think he's saying, God gave me assurance. And then he tells us how God gave him assurance. And, of course, he's doing that for us. That's why John the Baptist is saying these things about Jesus. It's for you and for me. But Jesus, as we've said before, was just a Jewish male in the first century. Here's what the Bible says about him in um, uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. It says, For he will grow up before him like a a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. And we sing this in a hymn sometimes. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So I think when John thought about his cousin, he says, well... He's just my cousin. He's just a Jewish male like all the other Jewish males in the first century. There's nothing about him in his appearance. He didn't go around with the halo over his head all the time. There was no way to distinguish him as Messiah. He says, until God told me how to distinguish him as the Messiah because God told John, the one on whom the dove descends and rests 
He says, that's the Messiah. And it doesn't record it in John's gospel, but in Mark's gospel and in Matthew and Luke, all of those places, the Bible says, at the baptism of Jesus, when Jesus uh, was baptized, which is an interesting aspect of the gospel story too, that a dove descended on him and rested, and a voice appeared from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How did John the Baptist know his cousin was the Messiah? Because his cousin, the Messiah, Jesus, came to him and asked to be baptized. And when Jesus was baptized, the, these signs that had been promised occurred at his baptism. He says, that's how it was confirmed to me without a shadow of a doubt and how the gospel writers are communicating this to us historically. That's how I knew that he was the Messiah. And like I said before, I would probably need something like that to happen before I would believe my cousin was the Messiah too. So God publicly identifies Jesus as the Messiah. We think, why was Jesus baptized? Well, I can tell you this, he wasn't baptized as a sign of repentance. He had no reason to repent of anything. His baptism, however, is a public identification. All baptisms are public identifications. His baptism was a public identification as Messiah, as the answer. He wasn't baptized to symbolize the cleansing of his sin. He had no sin. He was baptized, however, as a public identification or confirmation of who he was. And so we see his identity confirmed, and that's what the uh, apostle is, or rather the John the Baptist is describing for us in, in the scripture that we're reading. He hears the voice saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What does he say when he talks to his disciples? He says, I'm testifying that this is who? The Son of God. This is the Son of God. The voice that he heard told him, this is the Son of God. And so we've, I'm going to repeat myself again. He is begotten but not made. Begotten but not made. So when, he, when we talk about him as the Son of God, the Father causes the virgin to be with child and that child becomes this human that we're talking about, Jesus, historically. And so he is begotten, that is, he, he enters into human history, eternal God comes to human history. And the father, when that happens, says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, think about that saying, we, and we go back to Isaiah 53 to see what, how do we think about, why was he pleased with his son? Well, of course, we're pleased with our children because they're our children, but there's more to that in what the writer is saying in Scripture. In Isaiah 53, it says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him, the suffering servant. This is that passage. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So what, when the father looks at the son, he's well pleased because the sinless son becomes the sacrifice for our sin. 
And this is such fascinating language when it says, he shall see his seed. How is that possible? Because it's describing when you read the passage, passage, suffering and death, he dies, is placed into the ground, and is resurrected. And that's how he sees his seed, his children. But as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become children of God. When Jesus is resurrected, he sees you, 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 me, his, his seed, his children scattered all throughout history. All those who have been born again, those who have come to him to receive him as their savior, that's his seed. He prolongs his days. He raises him from the dead. This is in the Old Testament. Hundreds of years before Jesus ever appeared, the prophet Isaiah is saying, this is what's going to be true about the servant when he comes, the suffering servant. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, exactly what God wanted to occur so that righteousness could be fulfilled in Jesus, happened when Jesus came. Pleasure of the Lord prospers in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul. Some translations of the Bible say the travail, not a very common word, the distress. How did Jesus behave on the cross? Do you remember? How did he behave before he went to the cross? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, he says. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When he's on the cross, we know that the situation is that justice is being satisfied completely. God's righteous justice is being satisfied completely so that God visits the wrath that belongs to us on his son so that he won't visit it on you and me. Jesus receives the wrath of God, the punishment for our sin so that we don't have to be punished for our sin. So that we, there is a standard, a basis for forgiveness. Forgiveness happens on the basis of sacrifice. Without shedding of blood, there's no remission, the Bible says. So when Jesus is crucified, it is for you and me. He took our punishment. He becomes for us that sacrifice. And when God is well pleased in his son, that's why. That's why. So that we could be rescued and released and pardoned. And the father is satisfied because the just one died for the unjust one so that his loving kindness could flourish and we might thrive and really live. God's purpose for people is that you and I can experience his love and kindness. Loving kindness, mercy, compassion. That's what comes to us in Jesus. So when we see why Jesus came, what was he doing? What was this Advent about? That's the first part of it. In this passage, we see secondly that God uh, comes near to deal with that one right there. Yeah. Uh, help our relationships, to bless our relationships. God came near to bless our relationships. So the whole rest of this passage is about people who are friends or who Jesus makes friends with, and really interesting. Uh, I, I read this quote this week. I don't know how many of you have ever read the or seen the movie. I saw the movie Charlotte's Web growing up. Such a powerful little film, Hanna-Barbera, got all these little great songs in it too. But the it's, it's sad too, right? I mean, because the whole... Th- tone of the movie from the beginning is teaching kids about death. That's what it's about, really. Teaching children 
that people die or farm animals do. Sometimes they become bacon and sausage and tasty things like that. That's really the whole, if you've never seen the movie, you know, I would suggest that it's good. I don't, I haven't seen the the newest one. I'm talking about the old Hanna-Barbera cartoon one is the one I'm talking about. But in it, uh, at the very beginning, Wilbur is a pet pig to this little girl who's on a farm and doesn't realize that what happens to pigs eventually is they stop being pets and become food. <laughs> and so a spider appears in the barnyard and makes friends with the pig. And you get this little network of uh, interest in farm animals, but the whole point of the thing is friendship and dealing with passing and sacrifice and relationship to other people. And E.B. White, even though he wrote a children's book, is the eminent expert about writing. And he, he has the, uh, at the end, once, if you haven't seen it, and probably everybody knows the story, okay, but the spider weaves these webs and writes things like some pig in there. And everybody sees it and is blown away like, wow, this is a miraculous pig. One smart person goes, or miraculous spider, you know. (laughs) Terrific. You know, all these different messages keep showing up, but the purpose of it is to keep Wilbur from becoming bacon and sausage. And, And so they develop a friendship and this is what the what Wilbur says to Charlotte why did you do all this for me I don't deserve it I've never done anything for you you've been my friend replied Charlotte that in itself is a tremendous thing I wove my webs for you because I liked you after all what's life anyway we're born we live a little while we die by helping you perhaps I was trying to lift up my life a trifle heaven knows anyone's life can stand a little of that Well, we know that this is probably not a a perfect description of what it means to live, but it certainly is an important part of life that we have relationships and friendships. And the emphasis in the rest of this passage is that God works in people's relationships. People are concerned enough for each other to invite others to connect with Jesus. So when you read the rest of the passage, they keep saying things like, I have found the Messiah. Here's these people. Well, to begin with, we see that Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist. Interesting. He is already religiously interested. He's already following John, experiences probably John's baptism, John the, the baptism that John the Baptist was baptizing followers with. And it doesn't tell us the name of the other disciple. Interesting. In John's gospel, that probably means it's John, right? Possibly. There's two people following John the Baptist. One is Andrew. doesn't say who the other one was. A lot of times that tells us it's John, the gospel writer, John, the son of Zebedee. But they turn to Jesus and follow Jesus, and John encourages them to do that very thing. But God is working in relationships, and they find Jesus, and then uh, Andrew finds his brother Simon, who's going to become Peter, going to become important in the Christian movement as a leader. And he says to him, we've found the Messiah. Then Jesus finds a man named Philip, and Philip finds Nathaniel. 
But they keep saying the same thing. We have found the Messiah. And God works through the network of connections, relationships to help others. And then they'll say, come and see and, and experience what we're experiencing. John the Baptist is willing to release his followers to Jesus. And I think about leadership. It's so hard for leaders not to be guided by control and ego. But John knows, hey, my job isn't to make this for me or about me. His responsibility is to help people know Jesus. Any leader, by the way, if we want a quick leadership lesson, any spiritual leader in any congregation, our responsibility is to get people to Jesus. It's not to build a brand or a platform or to become, you know, uh, for the church and leadership to become some expression of our ego. That's really hard. Lots of people struggle with it. Honestly, me too sometimes. But it's not my job to make this about myself or any leader for that matter. And John points his, uses his influence to point people to Jesus. Jesus asked questions that he already knew the answer to. You don't think there's ever a time when Jesus is asking people questions that he doesn't know the answer. He knows the answer. But he's like, what do you seek? And they politely are like, well, where are you staying? And, the, and commentators say it's probably just a polite way of saying, hey, we want to come hang out with you. Could we come hang out with you? And Jesus says, yes, come and see. We don't know where he was staying. Not in his house, right? Because he didn't have one. Maybe the home of a friend or maybe uh, in an open air place, a campfire with tents, who knows. But they follow Jesus and they go with him and it's interesting to experience God in our relationships, we have to risk being awkward. Have you ever noticed that, how awkward it is to make your relationship spiritual in nature? Especially with people that don't share your point of view. Makes you a little uncomfortable when you, you stick yourself out there, you put yourself out there. But we have to get past our fears because it's worth it for people to know Jesus. It's what everybody needs, and we have to start somewhere. I think sometimes what's true about now, again, our historical moment, is that we may start out assuming that we'll be rejected. Like, I don't want to be rejected, but it's part of our responsibility to point other people to to Jesus. And we must care. And you know what I've noticed? How does caring show up in behavior? Uh, the only way I know that you care is if you act, right? That's how we know that we really care. Until then, like I've heard other people say, um, what we do is what we believe. Everything else is just nonsense. If I want to know what I really believe, then I just pay attention to my behavior. That's what I believe. Of course, we're inconsistent at times. I'll give us that. But if we really care, our caring has to become behavior. And so like them, we are commissioned by Christ to point people to him. And Jesus asked them questions a lot, and they move into relationship and um, they practice hospitality. And so that's a big part of it, I think. Why don't we do that more often? Why aren't we hospitable? Luke 16, 9 in the Bible says, 
it's a passage where uh, Jesus used the illustration about a man who lost his job because he was dishonest. He's a dishonest steward, and he goes back to the people that he had been bookkeeping for and tells them, change your books to your favor. And he, what he's doing is dishonest, and Jesus doesn't commend his behavior. But Jesus does say, make friends to yourself from dishonest mammon or unrighteous mammon is the word he uses. And, and what he really is saying is take your temporary situation and use it for eternal benefit. He, he says, because there's going to come a day when you'll be invited into eternal habitations. He says the friends that you use using your temporary stuff one day will invite you into eternal habitations. In other words, he's picturing a time going forward where the practice of hospitality, the use of our home, the use of our lunch money, you know, to have lunch with people, to engage in relationships with people. He says out here somewhere is an eternal result from that. So we talked about this in a whole message one time. Some of you are introverts, right? I'm not, but some of you are. And it's really hard for you to connect with other people. And so we have to assign to it an urgency. And we have to assign to it uh, um, an understanding about what a person is so that we will commit ourselves to gospel relationships. That's important. If, if we're to help people in the way that these friends did in this story, it's because we see the, the way the gospel works. The Bible says elders are to be given to hospitality. So, you know, I like this quote. I saw it, I heard it on a podcast a while back. Carl Truman said, hospitality is one of the qualifications for eldership, and I think elders are merely to be aspirational paradigms for every Christian. So I think when Paul says that an elder should be given to hospitality, he's really saying everybody should aspire to be to practice hospitality. That's a helpful way of thinking because it says Ken and Jonathan, Alvin, Varney, and Bobby and Scott, all of us are to be given to hospitality. But it says the elder himself is just hopefully trying to show you how to walk in maturity. So if he's an aspirational paradigm, what it means is that what they're doing, you should do too. So this quote is helpful because it says everybody ought to practice hospitality. You ought to see it in your leaders first, but then everybody ought to practice it as a way of being because it is a pathway for the gospel. That's why. It's interesting that evangelism is happening in family connections in this passage as well. Family may be the hardest people to reach, but they're also the most likely and familiar. So a lot of times we're hesitant to have spiritual conversation. In fact, people warn us not to at the holidays, right? Don't talk about politics and religion at the holidays. But I'm glad that my family talked to me about religion not religion, but about a relationship with Christ because the people in my life that helped me come to know Christ were my mom when I was 24 years old, my wife. She wasn't my wife at the time. It was in process. And my sister, Carol. Those, if I look back, I would say were the main three people who spoke to me in ways that made me think about my need for Jesus. My sister, Carol, gave me a Bible 
for Christmas when I was maybe 22 or 23, I can't remember. I was exhibiting no spiritual interest whatsoever, none. And my sister gave me a Bible for Christmas. I would have probably preferred something else. She put a note in that Bible that was the gospel. Basically took passages of scriptures, wrote me a personal letter, and kindly told me I needed Jesus. And I did. Because I did not know Jesus at the time. And I, it's precious to me. I've got the letter now. It was at the time, it was like, I don't want a Bible for Christmas. I'd rather have something else. Even socks probably at that time. But she gave me a Bible. So all I'm trying to say is like, even though family may be difficult for us to connect to and reach, what my story says is that was so vital and important for them to be willing to try to pray for me, to try to reach out to me. And so it's unfortunate that we've grown to believe that faith is off limits among our family and friends when God's located us there to have a meaningful presence for him. So I would say, yeah, we want to be winsome. We want to be, we don't want to be jerks, of course. But also don't forget that God put you in your family to be a witness to your family members. Don't neglect to, to be that presence. The people in this story kept putting Jesus forth as the Messiah. They weren't putting themselves forward. I think about that too because sometimes people in our family especially, boy, they know everything about you, don't they? And sometimes we think, well, I'm hesitant to put myself out there to my family. because. But you, listen, you're not putting yourself out there as the answer. Hopefully you are an accurate representation of the one who's the answer. But I'm not saying to anybody, I'm the answer. I'm saying I know the answer. I know what transformed my life and gave me hope. And I know who forgave my sins, and it's Jesus. And they keep, in this story, taking their friends and pointing them and their connections, relationships toward Jesus. And so... It's an interesting passage. Jesus gives Simon a new name that's not based on his present reality because Jesus knows that his presence in the life of any person is going to end up transforming them and making them different. He's like, you're currently Simon, but you're going to be a rock. You're going to be someone that I use. And, and uh, Jesus used Peter. We've talked about this. Even though he's opinionated, impulsive, at times overconfident, at times he regressed into his pre-Christian behavior, read Galatians, and yet God uses him. He, he calls him a rock. And so I like how God sees us with such benevolence at times, sees us with such kindness. And he sees probably better things than we may see in ourselves at times. But this is a narrative of people who are following Jesus. That becomes their identity. Following Jesus means that we conform our lives to what we see in him. We're apprenticed to him and we're becoming practitioners. So that is the practice part of this. And if you've, um, you know, I've shared before, what is a disciple? Well, it's a learner. And so all of us start out. I remember the first job I had, I worked in a grocery store. And they could tell me anything, and I would have believed it because I had no life experience. And guess what? They did that all the time. You know, people that work in places, when they know you're green, they try to take advantage of you. 
Well, a disciple is just a learner. That's what the Bible says. But learning means we internalize it and it becomes our practice and our, it becomes how we behave. And so that's what they are. When it talks about following Jesus, that's what they're doing. They're observing what Jesus is like and then they're committing to be like that. That's a follower of Jesus. That's our identity. That's who we are as well. So the passage is dotted with invitations. Come and see. A good prayer is to ask for clarity to see our relationships from God's perspective and then courage to act on what we see. Don't we need that? Clarity. God, help me see these relationships the way you see them. Courage. God, help me act on what I see and help me to be a witness to you. Jesus transforms our experiences for the better. That's all these people. They don't know what's ahead, but what's ahead for them is better. Better than anything they could choose for themselves. That's what comes through Christ. I know what I thought. I thought, I'm going to lose some stuff I don't want to lose. But in, in retrospect, you, you end up seeing, no, I didn't lose anything. I, all I did was gain, gain, gain And in, in, uh, when you put it in perspective. There um, are many times, like I uh, bought, I think, a Barnes & Noble copy of Dickens' Christmas Carol, and I, I read it. I haven't read it this year at Christmas, but a lot of times I do. Every Christmas I'll grab it, or many Christmases, and read through it. And I like it because it helps me set a mental mood for the holidays. That's why I enjoy reading it. Or if I'm lazy, I'll just watch Muppet Christmas Carol, which does a pretty good job. And has some songs in there too. But it reminds me that at its heart, the truth about Christmas is wrapped up in the possibility of human transformation. That's what I like about that story, even though it's not uh, in every sense a gospel story. In one sense, it is a gospel story because the gospel is about human transformation. I love when, you know, we know that story. Scrooge has all these spirits visit him. And at the end, he is totally convinced that his whole life has been wrong. That's repentance, right? Repentance is realizing my life has been wrong. And I love when he throws open the window and he shouts down to the little boy when he would have been shouting down abuse before, right? But hey, and he sends a little boy to buy a giant turkey for the Cratchit family that he uh, you know, has delivered there. But what you see in Scrooge is transformation. Here's a person who... His life has been awakened. And that's the gospel. The gospel is about a human awakening and forgiveness and reorientation toward God. It's the most important part of this story. I watched a movie recently, and uh, you know, I thought about the message in it afterward. And I think uh, often what people deliberately do is leave out the most important person in the story. The most important person in the story is God himself. He is the agent of transformation. He is the agent of setting us right and understanding reality and purpose and significance and meaning. So our relationships only find their correct form in relationship to God. That's the beauty of what Advent represents, Christ coming. Our giving and generosity, people tend to want to be generous this time of year. They only find their correct motivation as the overflow of worship. We're, we give because we're worshipers. We, we're generous because God's been generous to us first. 
Our ability to see and understand others properly comes from seeing God properly to begin with. And in this season, we have the ability to truly understand where our foundation is. Okay, I said in the beginning, it's a spiritual compass. That's what Advent season can be. We can take all the beauty, all the food, all the things that accompany it, the exchanging of gifts, the connecting of family, and if we have a spiritual imagination, we can say, this is pointing me to my hope. This is the foundation of my life, and that's why I know not everyone likes Christmas, and I know some reasons they don't, but I can say, for me, it is one of the powerful, hopeful parts of celebrating this season of the year. But here's the question. What is it for you? What is it for you? We're going to have a time of commitment this morning, and I will stand and pray with you today if you need uh, prayer. And It's always an invitation. This passage is, again, full of invitations of people who are seeing Jesus clearly, and then they come to Jesus, and then they say to the people around them, you need what I've found. And so I don't know everybody's situation today. I would say if you haven't trusted Jesus to forgive your sins and to cleanse you, then every person's life needs to come to a, a moment where our willingness is intersecting with God's willingness, and he's always willing. He, he uh, has come here and he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be rescued. And so we have this opportunity to, to respond to him. Stand with me if you would. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll sing a song as we close. If there's a need to respond, invite you to do it now or I invite you to just talk to me on the way out or grab one of our other elders and we'd be happy to uh, help you. God, thank you that we see in this season of the year such a beautiful portrait of your love for us, God, for your coming to us, that you spanned the, the distance. You came. You did miracles to rescue us and to snatch us out of uh, a pit of misery many of us were in and to give us a foundation for life and to cleanse us and forgive us you, the Holy One, became for us this sacrifice to purchase for us our forgiveness. Thank you. God, I pray that you will use us among our friends and family. God, may the way we are be to them a reminder that you're real. And God, give us at times, we pray, courage to be able to give gifts, write notes, speak, and help others to know that they are loved by you. And we commit ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen.